What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, on September 26, 2014, students from a rural teacher's college in Ayotzinapa, Mexico, were attacked, murdered, and disappeared by state actors and the police. We are joined this morning by John Gibbler, an independent journalist. Murillo Karam was the face of that lie because he went on these televised international press conferences when he described all these events that we now know never happened. They're totally false. They were lies. The confessions were extracted through torture. But when he presented them, he said, this is the historical truth of what happened, right? Esta es la verdad histórica. And so, you know, whenever somebody comes up to you and just says, this is really true, or especially when the state says, this is what happened, then you kind of know that it happened, you know? From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On September 26, 2014, students from a rural teacher's college in Ayotzinapa, Mexico, were attacked, murdered, and disappeared by state actors and the police. Forty-three students were disappeared, igniting years of protest. Now the attorney general, long thought complicit in the cover-up, has been arrested, reopening wounds and investigations. More investigations. We are joined this morning by John Gibbler, an independent journalist. He is the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine That They Would Kill Us, an oral history of the attacks against the students of Ayotzinapa and torn from the world, a a guerrilla's escape from a secret prison in Mexico, and other books. Good morning, John. Good morning, Kat. John, I want to walk through this from the beginning, right? I I don't know that all my listeners are are up to date on what happened in 2014. So I'm going to start by talking about who these young people were, what part of the country they were from. Absolutely. And thanks again for the invitation and greetings to all your listeners and to everyone at the station. Um, Always a a pleasure and honor to be on the air and especially on your program, Kat. So uh, these students from Ayotzinapa were... uh, from mostly rural subsistence farming communities in southern Mexico. Um, a large number of them were from indigenous communities uh, from the states of uh, Guerrero, Oaxaca, um, the state of Mexico, and surrounding areas. Um, they were attending a teacher's college, one of the few that are left after you know, years of neoliberal reforms in Mexico trying to get rid of these colleges that were created after the Mexican Revolution to tailor education for rural communities. Um, And these are schools with a very long tradition of socialist student organizing. Um, All the the students become members of a national socialist students federation, um, rural students federation. Um, And they're known across the country and especially in the region for being very committed activists. around issues of public education and and education geared toward rural peoples, bilingual education in indigenous languages, but also in solidarity with all kinds of social movements. Um, And and so that's really the the students attending Ayotzinapa are coming from those communities and geared towards pursuing a life as elementary school teachers in those communities as well. John, you mentioned that, that this is a college with a long history of supporting left, uh, left-leaning left issues. Examples of retribution that had happened uh, before September 26, 2014. This wasn't their first dance with law enforcement, though it was a much bloodier one than they were used to. No, I mean, you're very correct to, to point out that this is cool. Literally decades of history of uh, protest, mobilization, and, and repression 
and even just in recent years, um, you know, just in the in the two thousands, they they held a number of really you know high stakes uh, mobilizations where they shut down federal highways. Um, took over toll booths along the federal highway system in the state of Guerrero, all pushing for um, demands around the the funding of uh, public education for rural communities. Um, and they were brutally repressed, attacks, beatings. And in December of 2011, uh, a number of, of state and federal police officers um, opened fire into their, their blockade and murdered two students. John, talk to me a bit about this practice uh, in the in the pursuit of, of doing actions of commandeering buses um, and how that then played into the events of September 26, 2014. Of course, that's, that's a, it's an important issue. So first off, across Mexico and in numerous different protest contexts, people will tomar camiones or, or commandeer buses. The, the word I like is commandeer because they don't steal them. They don't. They, they keep the drivers with the buses. The drivers themselves are the ones who keep operating the buses and they return the buses to the companies. It's a very kind of unique uh, protest tactic that that I, I repeat is, is common in Mexico. And I think it's important because that couldn't be the justification for what set off the, the scale and the intensity of the attacks that night. So it, with, with the students of Ayotzinapa, they will commandeer these buses, which is basically, you know, they set up a roadblock at um, a place where the buses have to stop anyway, like a toll booth. Um, and they'll get on the bus and tell the bus drivers that, okay, we're commandeering this bus and, you know, please take us to the school or whatever. They use the buses principally for two things. One, for mobilizations. In this case, in September of 2014, they were planning to gather a large amount of commandeered buses so that they could lead a convoy of rural uh, teachers college students from across the country to Mexico City for the annual uh, mass mobilization on October 2nd, commemorating, uh, you know, horrible the irony, but commemorating a, a very large student massacre that took place there in 1968. So that's why they were gathering the buses that night. But the students also commandeered these buses to fulfill their state-mandated um, curriculum. The state requires that the students attend classrooms and carry out all kinds of uh, classroom observation and participation activities across the state, but they don't give them any form of transportation. Um, and so it had become a kind of like Tensely tolerated uh, anarchist form of of <laughs> quasi public transportation, right? Like this, the police knew that the kids do this. The bus companies knew that the kids did it. If the police got wind of where the students were going to go and try and get buses ahead of time and could have a large number of police there, the students would just turn around and go away. In fact, that had happened just a few days before the attacks. Even that morning of September 26th, they went to try and get some buses in the state capitol. There were a bunch of riot cops there. So they didn't like just go looking for a fight. No, they didn't want to fight. They wanted a bus. So they turned around and left. Um, but you know, this is something that had been happening and tensely, uncomfortably tolerated by the authorities for years. I mean, this, there's nothing about this state that is a laughing matter. And I have to say, as someone who has been in the business of shutting things down for quite a while, um, I like this practice um, in terms of interrupting business as usual. Um, all right, John, I know it's a long walk, but I want you to walk us through the events of that night, please. Okay. Um, 
and feel free to interrupt me. I'll, I'll try to do this as, as concisely as possible. Um, the students I mentioned, they, they tried to get some buses that morning. The cops were there, so they turned around. Later that evening, they went in a different direction than they usually go, which is the opposite direction from the school towards the state capital. This is heading more north toward the city of Iguala. Um, they went to the outskirts of the city of Iguala, tried to get buses, but couldn't. Interestingly enough, there were federal police at the roadblocks who were preventing the buses from coming through the um, the toll booths and thus, you know, in effect, preventing the students from commandeering the buses, but without confronting the students. Finally, at a different toll booth, they were able to get one bus. Nine students got on board. The bus driver said, let me take the bus to the bus station, drop off my passengers. The students said, okay. They went to the bus station. The bus driver locked those nine students inside the bus and then started getting on the radio. The bus, the students were scared. They were calling the police. So they called their colleagues who were still on the outskirts of town trying to get more buses. Those two busloads of students rushed into the city to the bus station, freed their, you know, compañeros, their colleagues, and then left the bus station with the two buses they came on and three new ones that they had just grabbed, just commandeered. Um, and then it's chaos. Basically, the attacks begin as the students leave the bus station and are trying to drive through Iguala to get to the highway to go back to the school. The buses end up um, splitting up. So in, they initially were five, but they took two different routes outside of the the bus station, um, and thus three end up getting attacked with you know gunfire, and then finally stopped and attacked gunfire by police officers right inside the city, the street called Juan and Alvarez, right as it was about to get to the avenue that would take the bus off to the highway. The other two buses take this more roundabout uh, route. Um, one of them gets way ahead and is stopped. On its way outside of town, again, the ironies are, are horrid because it gets stopped right in front of the state courthouse, which is called the Palace of Justice, right? Palacio de Justicia. So this bus is stopped, surrounded by police, brutally attacked, and every student on board of that bus is, is forcibly disappeared by the police in front of the state courthouse, which, by the way, has a very sophisticated um, security camera um, apparatus, which mysteriously um, was erased by the director of the state courthouse afterwards. She said she saw nothing of any legal value on that footage, even though it had just recorded a mass forced disappearance by police of students. Um, over the course of the night, students were attacked at multiple points across the city. This is important because it shows the scale and the complexity of the attack. It wasn't just, you know, a couple of buses on one location, but the buses were split up. They were attacked by different groups of large groups of police officers. In one case only, uh, one of the buses, the last one that was coming through on its way towards the state courthouse and then out, um, out of town, and they were stopped by federal police. And all 14 students on that bus were able to escape. They got off the bus and fled. And that bus, interestingly, was escorted out of town by the federal police, um, arrived at its destination, and then became the source of controversy for many years because the government tried to deny its existence. First, they erased it from communications and from maps, lied about it. And then when, of course, uh, you know, journalists and then later independent investigators you know, conclusively proved and documented the existence of that bus, including bus station video security camera footage showing the bus itself, you know, 
commandeered by students leaving the station, um, then it had to be admitted that yes, it did in fact exist. And that kind of jumping ahead a little bit become the central hypothesis, the working hypothesis of the motive of the attacks is that unwittingly the students in the chaos of trying to get out of town quickly and commandeer some buses at the bus station, grabbed the bus that was probably uh, loaded with a major heroin or cash shipment, probably heroin, um, in secret compartments. Um, and so the people in charge of that shipment would have immediately called uh, the, you know, the owners of that shipment. And this is, of course, very interesting because this again, I insist this is this is a hype this is still a, like the main working hypothesis. It hasn't been conclusively proved. But if that were the case, it shows who really controls the transnational heroin trafficking business, right? Yes, it's this organized crime group called Guerreros Unidos, but the foot soldiers, the people actually getting out in the street to stop the students, find the bus and return it. Police officers from three different cities, state police officers, federal police officers, military intelligence officers, and uniformed soldiers. And that's, again, kind of jumping way ahead, but that's what we think happened that night. The students unwittingly grabbed this bus. They were targeted for immediate attack to recover the bus. And then at some point in the course of the night, sometime around 11, 11.30, once the city was firmly under this paramilitary narco-military control, the students had all been stopped. Many of them have been, had been detained by police and were submitted inside official police vehicles. Someone makes the decision to disappear them. Um, in this case, the most likely scenario that's been documented so far is the murder of most of the students that night. We now have evidence that's just come out that six of the students were perhaps kept alive for several days and then murdered. And in most cases, and again, I apologize to listeners, this is just a horrid, atrocious reality, but they were probably murdered and um, their bodies either incinerated or dissolved in acid um, and then hidden. Uh, in different locations, all the students were never reunited into a single group. They were because they were detained in different locations. Um, they were taken off in different locations. Um, and then, what happens? And I'll say this as quickly as possible. But basically, the entire structure of the state uh, enters, like, jumps into gear to lie about what happened and to protect the identities of the officials, soldiers, police officers, and authorities who participated in this attack and in this fat mass force disappearance, to lie about it, to make it impossible to find the students, to know what happened. Um, and the Mexican government, its entire structure, uh, just you know, clinched its fists and ignored fact and reality and investigation and documentation and testimony for four years um, and just continued to lie until they left office. Then now there's a you know, change of administration in 2018, uh, which is from a very you know, opposition figure in relation to the previous administration who committed to solving the case during his presidential campaign, We're talking of course about Andres Manuel López Obrador, and then when some of his first acts in office were to establish a presidential truth commission and then later a special prosecutor's office inside the attorney general's office to investigate this case. The nature of that investigation has been complex, um, but that's you know what's been in the news over the last two weeks in, in Mexico. 
Right, and we're going to get to one of the biggest pieces of news in a moment, but I want to go back a little bit. I want to, um, I, I think it's important uh, just in terms of detail to, to remind our listeners uh, that many of the students that were disappeared and killed that night, uh, this, these, these were first-year students, and for many of them, this was their first action, correct? These were babies. Absolutely. So many of them were 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, uh, you know, and it was literally they, they just started classes. For many of the students I uh, interviewed in the days and, and, and weeks after the attacks, that had been that Friday had been their first day of classes. And I think the, the other thing, and, and maybe I read more into this than I should have uh, that may have contributed to that night is in Iguala that night, Mayor Jose Luis Abarca was having an event um, perhaps a, a pre-campaign event for his wife, and there were lots of uh, high-ranking officials from Mexico uh, present, correct? That is correct, yeah. Um, there were the military and, and police officials were there. Um, and that event you know, ran its course. It ended peacefully. There was no protest uh, during that event. The students, in fact, hadn't even come into the city by the time it was over. But Abarca, uh, the, the mayor at the time, it seems like you know he did have uh, a lot of uh, rancor towards the students because of protests that they had carried out, very intense protests and justly intense because they were protesting forced disappearance um, of, a, of an activist. Um, and they set the mayor's offices on fire, um, trying to pressure the government to, you know, locate the disappeared activist um, whose body was later found dumped in the street. Um, uh, and so there's, there, was a, there was an intense uh, tension. <laughs> I'm not being eloquent right now, but, but yeah, the mayor had conceived, I think, of the students as, as enemies. And, and your question points towards something that I do think is really essential um, in, in looking at what happens. And, and that's that even if this perhaps hidden heroin shipment was what set off uh, the initial attack to stop the students. When someone or a group of people makes the decision to disappear them, I think at that moment, it's not just because they grabbed a bus. I think it's because of who they are. It's because of um, there being Ayotzinapa students from this you know, rural, indigenous, intensely politically active uh, school. And so I think there's a, a, a content of counterinsurgency and also class and race violence in the moment that they make this decision. I think that the, the extent of their cruelty uh, stems in part from that. Something else, Don Gibbler, that struck me uh, in, in reading your reporting on that night was you you talked about that the students had engaged with cops before, right? And there was this moment where the more experienced students were like, don't worry, it's just shots in the air. They were expecting a very different engagement. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're young radical students who, when they're in a protest, if they get attacked by the cops, you know, throwing rocks at them and shooting tear gas at them, then they pick up the tear gas canisters and throw them back at the cops and they throw rocks at the cops too. And they know that if you get caught, you'll probably get beaten up, you know, which technically is, is torture if it's the state, I think, grabbing people and submitting them and then beating them. Um, but they know that's a part of the, 
the risks. Um, and and when they heard the gunshots, I think they assumed, based on prior experience, that they're just you know they're just trying to scare the students shooting in the air. And by the way, the first shots from the testimonies uh, that I received interviewing the, the students who survived that night on those first buses driving through town is that the first shots were in fact in the air. Um, like they were like the first cops who pulled up and tried to stop the buses were shooting in the air, but very quickly then they started shooting at the buses themselves and at the students. All right. I want to turn to the events that have resurfaced this tragedy into mainstream international news. Um, and that is with the arrest of Attorney General Jesus Maria Caram. Can you talk about his story initially about what happened uh, to the students and what questions arose about the validity of his story? At the time, absolutely. Um, he, you know, he's an old political operator from the former controlling party, the Party of the Institutional Revolution, um, and he, you know, was rising in the ranks of the party and had come to the position of being federal attorney general during the the Peña Nieto administration. Um, and he's in office when this happens, and he becomes the face of. I think the atrocity and the lies and the federal government's attempt to administratively produce the forced disappearance of these students through lies and torture. Um, and when I say torture, I literally mean there's now been revealed 60 videos of the torture of more than 50 people who were initially detained in the case. So the torture to produce false confessions was systematic. And Murillo Karam hold uh, uh, several press conferences in late October and then in early November um, describing a completely unrealistic uh, series of events. Uh, you know, he says that the students were all grouped together and turned over to by the police to a drug trafficking gang. And that always, you know, from the very beginning, I had already been interviewing a bunch of the survivors and it made no sense to me that, you know, and just like thinking about, you know, military logic, uh, if the students are in large numbers and they're, you know, attacked and detained in smaller groups, why would they bring them all together, right? And um, right. and then they, you know, and the, the idea that there's this, you know, turning over of the students from police to organized crime also made me really suspicious because I think, oh, that's so convenient for the state to say, oh, the cops just stopped them and then they turned them over to these evil, you know, gang members who then did terrible things to them, burning them alive and so on. Um, and because that there was never any evidence presented uh, to support um, those claims, right, that the students had been brought back together in one group or turned over uh, in scare quotes. Um, then Murillo Karam said, he described this, you know, atrocious, horrid scene of the students being taken all out to this isolated, rural, open-air trash dump and having their bodies burned all through the night, incinerated, in fact. Um, and then their ashes put into eight garbage bags and dumped in a nearby stream. Um, and again, this immediately didn't make sense. It, it turns out that it rained all night that night, you know? And it was like, how can you incinerate 43 human beings in the rain in a single night? Me and another... Uh, a number of other reporters, we, you know, we went to the city in that trash dump where we interviewed uh, residents and no one saw any columns of smoke, you know, the next day. And it, and it turned out not only that, but 
um, a colleague and I were able to speak to the municipal trash workers. And it turned out that they had driven out to that trash dump on Saturday, September 27, 2014, and dumped the trash there around noon. They told us that the road was still really muddy from the rain the night before. It took them a while to get out there. And of course, when they arrived, there was no massive uh, pyre of human beings being incinerated. Right? Um, so we knew that was a lie from almost immediately. But Murillo Karam was the face of that lie because he went on these televised international press conferences and he said two things which became, you know, kind of, you know, nowadays they would be, they would be memes, right? Uh, but they were, they mm-hmm. became, they became like kind of the symbol of the, the, the lack of concern, the cruelty um, of the state towards the families and, and towards society of the nation. Um, he said during the, one of the first press conferences, um, another reporter wanted to ask a question, and he was like, I think that's good. I'm tired now. Like, ya me canse, right? I'm tired now. And so that became this, you know, it's just that's so egregious. How could this federal official whose responsibility it is to do justice, right, to find perpetrators and to investigate crimes, tell families desperately looking for their children that he's tired, right? Um, and then in the next press conference, he, when he described all these events that we now know never happened, they're totally false, they were lies, the, torture, the confessions were extracted through torture. But when he presented them, he said, this is the historical truth of what happened, right? Esta es la verdad histórica. And so, you know, whenever somebody comes up to you and just says, this is really true, or especially when the state says, this is what happened, then you kind of know <laughs> that happened, you know? It's, yeah. it's like yeah. when the state says the cops weren't armed, you know they were armed, you know? You just have to find the evidence to prove it. But <laughs> that's like one of my kind of reporting 101s is like whenever the state makes this effort to say this didn't happen, it probably did. This happened, it probably didn't. And you've got to investigate to, to, to show that. But so... You know, he comes out and says, this is the verdad histórica, this is the historic truth. And of course, what he's describing is an entirely false uh, scenario, which, you know, it's, 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 it's covering up. It's also, I think, I think it really is forced disappearance itself because of the nature of forced disappearance. Since the students were disappeared and the state knows that and yet they tell lies, I think that is the state continuing to extend the forced disappearance into the present indefinitely. And also, it just, I think about those families being forced to listen to that like horror film type story, knowing that it didn't happen. And they were, they were forced to imagine that scenario, even though it didn't happen. And at the same time, you know, they're desperately looking for their children and their state is making that impossible. So that's really what, Murillo Karam, I don't think, I don't think he was the highest level official involved in in building that structure of lies. Um, I think he was, without a doubt, the, the symbol of it, the face of it. John Gibler, we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon, but he, he is the highest ranking official to be arrested. Uh, there's also, were produced by the judge, 80 other arrest warrants of high ranking officials, another three-month complimentary investigation. What do you think all this means for the social political fabric of the country? Oh, I mean, I think it's, I think it needs to force a kind of reckoning about looking at uh, the deep interwoven nature of the transnational drug industry and the structures of the state. 
um, and counterinsurgency, like the ling- lingering commitment, I don't know the right word, but the lingering presence of a counterinsurgency hatred um, in in the military and in the police uh, and, and in the governing class. Like what can produce this kind of an atrocity? Um, and, and in this case, I, I, I definitely don't think this is something unique to Mexico. Uh, uh, I think there are all kinds of unique characteristics to the interwoven nature of, of drug trafficking and security forces. Uh, but that's, that's the U.S., that's Colombia, that's, you know, I mean, and, and it's the U.S. very much in the sense of it being, I right, think. The, the war on drugs becomes a war on the people, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, John Gibler, thank you so much for coming on the show. I do hope you'll come back, and thank you for your work uh, covering this tragedy. Kat Brooks, thank you so much for the invitation, and uh, it's a pleasure in any time, and thank you for your work as well. John Gibbler is an independent journalist, the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine They Would Kill Us, an oral history of the attacks against the students of Ayotzinapa and Torn from the World, a guerrilla's escape from a secret prison in Mexico and other books. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, family.